Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, I'm really excited to say we've got Jill Bennett OBE on the podcast. Jill was Chief Historian of the British Foreign Office. She's advised 12 foreign secretaries under six prime ministers, and she advised them on the history behind their important policy decisions and the major world events during her time there. She was also the person that a government would go to when it needs to find out the truth behind a rumour or a conspiracy. That's the sort of job that I want. You get to find out all the state secrets. So we couldn't resist to get her on the podcast and talk about some of the most enthralling conspiracies that she worked on, especially those that have endured from the First and Second World Wars. We even talk a little bit about some Nazi gold. So here is Jill Bennett, OBE, on conspiracy theories, myths and intrigue from the World Wars. Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Where are we talking to you from in the world? Oh, I'm in central London. The perfect place for us to be talking about an important bit of British history, right? Because you are, or you were, for a decade, the chief historian of the British Foreign Office. And I know you still work closely with the Foreign Office. With that in mind, perhaps you could just... Tell us a little bit about what the Chief Historian of the Foreign Office does. Well, the Foreign Office, I mean, I should say Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, has a cadre of professional historians embedded within it. It's over 100 years old, the Foreign Office historians. Their their mission, as they like to say, is history at the heart of diplomacy. And Official historians in the Foreign Office have two main jobs. And the first job is actually putting together the official history of British foreign policy. That's the publishing and that goes along. But the other main job is to give what's called historical advice to ministers and senior officials, which could be absolutely anything. But it tends to be, it's quite often is to do with where there's a controversy, where somebody's complaining that, there was a cover-up or the government got something wrong or whatever it is, or there was a terrible decision. And quite often, so if it's a historical question, then the historians get called upon to research it and to put together a brief for ministers. The historians' function used to be very much a backroom. We never let out. We used to provide our briefing for whoever it was. 
But gradually, and especially when I was chief historian during the 90s, there were a number of quite high profile issues coming up, particularly related to intelligence history, where it actually just made sense for the historians themselves to actually put the story and talk about it. They became increasingly more high profile, and indeed they are still quite high profile. It depends on what's going Obviously, at the moment, everybody's locked down. We're all providing our advice remotely. The historians have been extremely busy over the last year, advising on a whole range of issues. So it is still very much a live function. And that's why I'm still involved with it, because it is so very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a history podcast, so all of our listeners will absolutely agree. I want to go into detail and ask you about what sort of things are the historians looking at at the moment, but I won't. I'm sure it's all very top secret. And instead, I'd like to take a little bit of journey through your career, if that's okay, and some of the controversies that you looked into. Because people must ask politicians a lot of questions about conspiracies they've heard, and they want to know the truth, and it's your job, I assume, then, when an MP or a minister asks you, Jill, I need to know the truth about this. Can you dig into the archives and the history? And one of these that's always fascinated me is the Zinoviev letter, that controversy during the interwar period that was said to bring down a Labour government. First thing I can say is it didn't bring down the Labour government, but that's part of the story. The Zinoviev letter is interesting because when I first joined the Foreign Office in 1972, so a very long time ago, that controversy was already on our books, if you like. It was one of those things that had already come up that people used to write in about or ask questions about. And in the 70s, there was quite a movement among academics and journalists indeed pushing for greater openness about particularly intelligence matters. And things started to open up a bit. And there were various newspaper articles and books, lots of people claiming to know exactly what the answer was, who wrote this Noviev letter. I'd better say briefly what it was. This letter was a letter supposedly written in September 1924 by Grigory Znoviev, who was the head of the Comintern, which was the Soviet Russian propaganda organization. And the letter was addressed to the British Communist Party, and it was exhorting them to greater revolutionary effort. It's supposedly written by him, and it supposedly came to them. None of those things we now think probably happened. But the whole point, the real importance of the letter was when it arrived, because it arrived in Britain. Its first and possibly only arrival point was with the Secret Intelligence Service, later called MI6, which is the UK's foreign intelligence organization. It came to them first, and it arrived just as the very first ever Labour government in Britain had actually just resigned. They had lost a vote of no confidence. They'd been in power since January. They'd lasted a lot longer than either the Conservatives or, or the Liberals thought they would. It actually done really quite well. But this letter arrived just as the government came to an end. The letter was leaked to the right-wing press. It was published in the Daily Mail. Big stories, you know, reds under the bed, Labour controlled by Moscow. It was used to smear the Labour Party then and later. Now, 
the unfortunate fact, and this doesn't, I'm afraid, fit in with Labour Party mythology, but it's true, they were already going to lose the election. Because the reason was that the Conservatives in the election of December 1923, which had put Labour into power, the Conservatives had been split. They got their act together, they joined together, they were always going to win. And in fact, Labour polled one million more votes in the election they lost than they did in the election that put them into power, if you follow me. However, this letter during the election campaign was used to really smear Labour and the Labour Party was very, very upset about it. Not just the government, but the wider Labour Party. It was felt this was dirty tricks. It was obviously the press, but it was also accused the conservative interests of all sorts, the conservative central office, the civil service, the intelligence services, they were all accused of orchestrating this dirty tricks campaign. And that particularly increased when it became clear that this letter was most probably a forgery. The reason it all kind of was raised was because the British government wrote a note of protest to the Russians about the Zinoviev letter saying, you are interfering in our elections. Does sound familiar? <laughs> and, you know, this is intolerable provocation. And it's quite clear from the evidence, which I later was to uncover, that when this protest first arrived, the Russians actually had no idea what we were talking about. They were genuinely at first caught on the hop. Another quite topical thing is that once they realised what was going on, they said, well, what we have to do in cases like this is first you deny everything, and second is you say the British did it themselves. Again, this is a particular tactic. But the damage was done. But the more time went on and various different interests launched investigations into the letter, the more it appeared that this letter wasn't genuine at all. Then, of course, the question is, well, in that case, who did write it? And how did it get to this country? And who leaked it? And who manipulated it? And it's that set of questions which over the years have proved a very solid conspiracy question. Now, from my point of view, this kind of dripped on really through the 70s. People periodically wrote books or articles, but there was never anything that was really conclusive. But then in 1998, a book was published called The Crown Jewels. Now, this was published by Nigel West, who's really a former Conservative MP called Rupert Allison, intelligence historian, and a former KGB colonel called Alex Zaryov. And it was called The Crown Jewels, which was the code name that the Bolsheviks used to give to information they received from British spies, such as Kim Philby, Burgess and McLean, the Cambridge spies. In this book, there was a chapter on the Zinoviev letter, which said, this is what it was, this is who wrote it. And they said it was a particular white Russian, a former Tsarist officer who wrote it in the Baltic states in Latvia in 1924. And it set out all this information. Now, this book actually caused quite a stir in this country and in Parliament. And there were questions in Parliament on the lines of why do we have to read about our own history from a traitor's papers? Because these were papers that Philby and others were supposed to have taken to Russia. And questions were asked, and this led the then Foreign Secretary, this is 1998, Robin Cook, to stand up in the House of Commons and said, 
I have ordered a full investigation. Now, this is something that happens to official historians. A minister stands up and says, I've ordered it. And they don't tell you beforehand, but you know it's you then. The point about all this was that in order to investigate this question, you had to have access to the archives of the UK's intelligence agencies, including archives that were not open, obviously, to the public, because an official historian, I was allowed to have that. I also traveled to Moscow and I traveled to Washington. And it was quite a long investigation. But as a result of it all, I came to the conclusion that it almost certainly was a forgery. But I could not be absolutely categoric about who forged it, although there were various possibilities. And I should add in here that in the 1920s, you're looking at an absolutely rich espionage scene across Europe, in fact, across the world, but across Europe. So there's one man I want to mention because he's a great conspiracy figure. This is a man called Vladimir Orlov. Now, Orlov had achieved the incredible feat of working originally in the Tsarist secret police. He then, when the Bolshevik revolution happened, he managed to get into the Bolshevik security authorities. And then he left that and went to work for the white Russians. That was the opposition outside Russia. And he set himself up in Berlin as a forgery bureau. And he churned out documents almost for anybody who paid really. He was concurrently being paid by the British Secret Service, the French, various bits of the German government, the Red Russians and the White Russians. So he's quite a character. Now, I'm not suggesting that Orlov wrote this Novier letter, but I'm pretty sure he would have known who did. And he may well have played a part in speeding it on its way. But it was a very confused intelligence picture. And the research has led me more and more into all kinds of very convoluted stories to do with Zinoviev. But as a result of all that, the government published my report, this is in 1999, in which I concluded that I couldn't be absolutely sure who wrote it, though I was pretty sure it wasn't Zinoviev, but that I thought it may well be that individuals in the British intelligence establishment, not institutional conspiracies, which anybody who's in government knows just is an actual possibility. Individuals may have played a part in leaking it and manipulating it. So 1999, we move on. One of the peculiar things about the Zinoviev letter is that it comes up again and again. The book I published on it in 2018 is called The Conspiracy That Never Dies. It came up in the EU referendum campaign. It came up in Theresa May's election campaign. To it, I'm sure it will come up again, especially in the current climate of disinformation, fake news. Obviously, now you have technological means of spreading these stories. But in the 1920s, the Bolsheviks, that is the Russians, the Soviet Russians, were incredibly good at this kind of thing. And they could move a story around the world in lightning speed, even though there were no real you know, telephones, there certainly weren't any computers or anything like that. And they were pretty good at spreading a story. And as we all know now, however ludicrous a story may be, you always find some people who are willing and able to believe it. So because Zinoviev, the Zinoviev letter has become such a kind of 
classic disinformation case, it's still interesting. It's still, I keep a Google alert on Zinoviev and it comes up quite often. One thing I should mention about this is that in the 1960s, before I'd heard of it indeed, there had been a secret Whitehall-wide investigation into this. And this all came about because of the defection of Kim Philby. Now, Kim Philby, of course, had actually been suspected of being a Soviet agent and had had to leave MI6, SIS, in, in 1951. But he had been cleared. They never had quite the evidence there. And people could not believe he'd been a very senior SIS officer. They did not want to believe that he could be a spy. But of course, he then defected from Beirut in 1963. So it was obvious that all along he had been a Soviet agent. And this caused, as you might imagine, tremendous consternation across the whole of British intelligence. And there was a committee which was formed to think, what else might there be? If he could do this, might there be somebody else? Might there be something else? And they re-examined a lot of earlier controversies and episodes, and one of them was Zinoviev. So an amazing lady called Millicent Baggett, who had just retired from MI5, some people think she was one of the models for John McCarry's Connie. She was a Sovietologist, and she was asked to conduct this investigation, and she did in the late 60s. And indeed, I concluded very much what she concluded. She also found that it was almost certainly a forgery, but she could not be sure who. But the difference with her is she'd actually managed to talk to some of the people who'd been involved at the time, who, of course, were still alive then, which was not the case. When the whole thing blew up in 1998, Robin Cook, Foreign Secretary, initially could not believe that such an old story was causing such outrage in Parliament, but also within the Labour Party. He said, this is, you know, this is years ago. But then he discovered that actually, you know, memories go back a very long way. And when the report was published at the beginning of 1999, on one particular person, I had a message from that person's son saying, my father would never have been involved in anything like this. And I also had a message from the grandson saying, I always knew my grandfather was involved in this, which just goes to show that on controversies, particularly ones like this Noviev letter, memories are very long. That is absolutely fascinating. What a history. And it does, it brings it right up to today. As you were speaking, I had flashes of the accusations against Corbyn during the election or false letters that were sent from the Greenlandic government to the Danish government around the Arctic or fake news that continues to dominate our news cycles. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. 
Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What can we learn from the Zinoviev letter and the controversies and conspiracy theories around that incident? Well, of course... Part of this kind of conspiracy is inevitable in a polarised political environment. We have to remember that in 1924, the Labour Party had only been in existence since 1900. And within, you know, 1924, it became the main opposition party, pushing the Liberals to third place where they never recovered from. This was a huge achievement politically, but of course, it was also a shock to right-wing interests, and political feelings ran very high. Of course, things were different then. It was, a, you know, political life was much smaller. You would find that, for example, everybody who owned a newspaper and cabinet ministers, they all tended to know one another. They'd been to the same schools, they married each other's sisters, or they belonged to the same clubs, senior intelligence officers, senior diplomats, and so on. It's a much smaller circle. So it's like spreading a story obviously could move quite quickly. Now, today, we have a different kind of smallness, which is because of the internet and social media. We don't know all these people, but a story can go around the world in infinitesimal time. When things are apparently inexplicable, or you really don't like them, you want to believe that there must be a group of people who are doing this. Now, actually, People who work within governments and civil servants, anywhere I'm talking, not just in Britain, you know, that's actually not how it works. And really, it's extremely difficult, especially in a, any kind of open society, to keep any kind of secret at all. 
even in autocratic societies, things have a way of coming out. So I think the lessons of Zinoviev, particularly ongoing, are the same lessons that I would say to anybody to do with disinformation. Think twice when you're reading something, think about where it might have come from, question the source, consider it might be the motive of whoever's putting this story out. Are you only enjoying it because it fits in with what you already think? Confirmation bias, they call it. Don't trust everything you read and see. That's a very simple message, but it had a big impact in 1924. People reading their newspapers where it said Ramsay MacDonald was really a Russian agent. Now, it's actually clearly ludicrous. But in that kind of rather fevered election campaign, it has traction. And it just shows you how careful we've all got to be. Yeah, it really does show you the power of fake news and its ability to divide us. But you are right, it's a guilty pleasure and we all absolutely love a conspiracy. So, while we've got you on the podcast, I know that you've advised 12 foreign secretaries under six prime ministers, is that correct? I think that was the... That was the <laughs> something like that. That's amazing. And so, what have been the most, for you, interesting conspiracies that you've looked into? Another couple of hardy perennials, really. Now, this is one conspiracy that has pretty well been laid to rest, which is good. But again, when I joined, it was already going and it went on for a long time. This is the question of the famous Black Diaries of Sir Roger Casement. Now, Roger Casement had been a very distinguished colonial civil servant. Indeed, he'd been knighted for his work in exposing the exploitation of local labour by what we would today call multinationals in the Congo and up the Amazon and so on. He'd had a very distinguished career, but he was also a very strong Irish nationalist. And during the First World War, he went to Germany to try and raise a kind of Irish brigade, and they were going to go back, and it was all to do with the Easter Rising in 1916. Now, uh, the conspiracy bit about all this is that in fact, British intelligence had good intelligence about what Casement and his colleagues were up to. And as he was going over to Ireland, he was intercepted, arrested, tried for treason and executed. Now, that is all actually quite straightforward in the sense that the evidence was very clear. But where it got murky was that when he was arrested, his lodgings were searched and they found these diaries, which were detailed accounts of homosexual activities with quite young men. Now, obviously, that's the kind of thing that would always be regarded as something that could smear a person's character, but particularly in 1916. And unfortunately, the existence and some of the contents of these diaries were leaked, if you like, including some by a very senior policeman. The conspiracy bit comes in, in that Casement's followers and the Irish nationalist movement generally refused to believe these diaries were genuine. And this went on for a very, very long time, this allegation that they could not believe this of a man they regard as a hero, leaving aside how times change and everything. The whole point was that there had to be some detailed examination of the diaries. And the, when I first looked at them, you could not think they were genuine. But the claim was that British intelligence had forged them. But if the British really wanted to use this to smear 
placement's reputation. A single letter would have done, you know, why five volumes? Fortunately, much later, in the early 2000s, finally, the diaries were proved to be genuine. Sophisticated forensic techniques were able to establish, even to the satisfaction of, of those who didn't want to believe it. So that was good. It laid that particular question to rest. But of course, there were other aspects to this, as you say, in the wider context of Anglo-Irish relations and to do with what happened to, you know, the remains of Casement going back and being reburied and things about his memory. And, you know, in 2016, it was the centenary of the Easter Rising. All this issue came up again. Relations actually with the Irish government are very good and it's all absolutely fun. The fact is, it is a sensitive issue and it will always be a sensitive issue. But the important thing from a historian's point of view is to open it to the light and say, this is what happened. It might not have been a good thing that happened, but this is what happened. And also, of course, you have to always consider the context of the time when things were said. It's like if you look at records from the Second World War, the comments made by foreign office officials about, oh, I don't know, Jews or black people or anything. These days, they would be found incredibly offensive and you just wouldn't. But nobody even thought about it then. And it doesn't mean you have to like it, but it does mean you have to understand that that was just how things were at the time. And there's no point in considering that people were deliberately being offensive then because they weren't. You're right. It's about trying to bring as much truth as possible and to support that truth with facts and to provide transparency so that some sort of healing process can begin after that, I suppose. The one that really occupied me for some years, again, it came out much later, but this is all to do with as Nazi Germany swept across Europe, it would take control of central banks of the countries it occupied, it would loot their gold, it also, of course, took the property of very many people, Jewish people in particular, their possessions, their artworks, their whatever. And this was all known. And then the other part of that was that they also laundered money through neutral countries during the world, through Switzerland, through Spain, through Portugal. In the 90s, again, one day, the Foreign Secretary, who was then Malcolm Rifkin, received a letter from Greville Janner, later Lord Janner, saying that an organisation he was involved with in the United States had discovered some secret British documents they'd obtained in the US under the Freedom of Information legislation. This was a, a cover-up on the part of the British government, and he wanted to know what about it. Now, he said, these are secret intelligence documents and you are covering them up. Now, at this point, I knew nothing about this, but the private office of the foreign secretary made inquiries in the proper quarters and were told this is nothing to do with us, which was actually true. But of course, when he replied that, this was even more of a cover up. And at this point, somebody thought, let's ask the historians. <laughs> well, when these documents that Greville Janner had produced came to us, 
we knew immediately, firstly, what they were, but secondly, that they'd actually been in the public record office now, the National Archives at Kew, since 1972. So they absolutely weren't. But of course, that doesn't matter. The damage is done then. Once there's been a cover-up, and it's a, it doesn't matter if you can say, well, actually, they've been sat there for the last 25 years. So then it's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to cover up what the British government might have done and what other governments might have done about it. And it was all tied up with the fact that some banks, particularly in Switzerland, where, of course, there's a lot of confidentiality, still had in their vaults money belonging to people who had been killed by the Nazis and who knew nothing about it, dormant accounts. And it was a question, this was a campaign funded largely by very wealthy organisations in the States to uncover this and get the money back for people. But again, it was one of these, I've ordered a full investigation. And this took some years before we discovered all the ins and outs of what happened to some of this money, what the Swedes did, what the Swiss did. And it took me around the world. I testified before Congress on one occasion, which was quite exciting. At the time, it was a question of, had there been a conspiracy of silence not to talk about financial dealings during the war? And to some extent they had, really because people didn't want to think about it rather than they actively were covering it up. But this was a major piece of work for the historians. Finally, another little conspiracy from the Second World War, which again has gone on and on, is a question of the Katyn massacre, which is the discovery of a mass grave in the Katyn forest in 1943 with thousands of Polish officers. Now, of course, in 1943, we were absolutely in the middle of the war and the Soviet Union is fighting. It's one of you know, the great alliance with the Americans and with the British. And the Russians said the Germans must have done it. And the Germans said the Russians did it. For many years afterwards, the British government was accused of covering up the fact that we'd always known the Russians did it. Now, in fact, we didn't cover it up because the ambassador to Russia during the war said, I'm pretty sure the Russians did it, but quite honestly, we can't prove it, and we're in the middle of the war, and they are our allies, and Churchill said, this is not the time to go into this. Now, that may not be ideal, but it's perfectly understandable, it seems to me, in the circumstances at the time, but the opinion of the ambassador saying that, again, had been made public many years before, so it wasn't covered up, but it wasn't drawn attention to either. Now, this one ran and ran until, in fact, in 1990, the Russian government admitted that actually it had been a Russian crime. But there are still some people who consider this was a great conspiracy. It has corners that are not ideal. But I mean, if you look at any government's record, you have to be realistic. I've always said, whenever I'm asked, my job is not to defend government policy at any given time. My job is to explain what happened and to try and explain why people did what they did at the time, not to say it was a good thing or a bad thing. As a historian, that's not a judgment I'm there to make. My judgment is to try and get as close as I can to the truth of whatever it happens to be and to present it. And sometimes that's not what ministers want to hear. That's fine. 
ministers have to make decisions. If they don't want to make a decision that's based on what I've done, well, that's how politics works. But the important thing, which you have in this country, which you don't have in some countries, is that people like me are allowed to say it and allowed to write it. What's done with it then is a different matter. And we love to hear it as well. <laughs> I've got questions. I've got loads of questions, Jill. But I'd be getting emails left, right and centre if I didn't ask. Is there Nazi gold in the Swiss bank accounts? Well, I doubt there's anything left now, but there wasn't gold. I mean, there were funds that were left and a lot of lawsuits began and everybody really felt they had to enter into all this. Of course, it has a kind of an openness effect, you know, and there were meetings of all the representatives, the neutral governments, a lot of whom appointed historians also to look into their own past to try and see what they'd done and whether there was anything they had done that still could be used for restitution. Or Then there was a thing called the Tripartite Gold Commission, which had been set up at the end of the Second World War. The gold which the Germans had stolen and so on, I mean, it was a body set up to dispense that gold back to who had owned it. It's an incredibly complex business, this organisation, formally established in 1948 in the end, but we wound it up in 1998. And I tell you, it was an absolute nut. But again, it's to do with trying to get to the bottom of what happened when. But politics always gets in the way of these things, of course. And one of the reasons this was still an issue was because certain countries had not received their allocation because there was some kind of political dispute and in the case of the British government there was this dispute with the Albanian government over the Corfu Channel incident of 1946 when the Albanians had shelled and mined some British ships during which a lot of sailors were killed. I mean this is not a conspiracy it's a convoluted story which had never been settled in the end, it took 50 years before the whole thing was sorted out. But over the mists of time, of course, documentation gets put away, it gets forgotten, gets put in the wrong place. People forget it was ever there. That's complicated too. But the twists and the turns and the investigations are incredible. Jill, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. Where can people read more about these conspiracies? Well, they can look at my book about these Noviad letter, of course. And if you, uh, there is a website, issue.com, and all the Foreign Office historians' publications, not the books, but all the reports and all the smaller sort of investigations, the things, they're all on there, including, for example, the reports about Nazi gold. They're all free online to consult there. So anybody interested in the kind of work of the historians over the last hundred years, if you go on issue.com, you'll find all kinds of strange things there. Wow. So if you're in need of something to keep you busy during lockdown, then that is certainly the place to go. Absolutely. Jill, thank you so much. My pleasure. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.